Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. One thing all of those verses have in common is a focus on the importance of studying the word and applying the word, because when people really listen to God's word and do what God's word says, it's going to produce that that six-letter word, change. It's going to change people the way they ought to be changed from the inside out. And that means it's going to change the way you think about everything in life, including political leadership. And we're going to address that tonight. So maybe we need to have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure they're in fellowship. And uh, anybody who uh, may feel uncomfortable, can leave in that process. I don't think anybody will. All right, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can be here tonight. We're here because of your grace. We're here because of your plan of salvation. We're here because you planned a spiritual life for us that has that is based upon a study of your word and an application of your word as we learn what it means to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the light, to walk in fellowship, and to abide in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we recognize that your word addresses every issue of life because everything that we encounter in life ultimately comes out from, your, from the fact that you have created all things. And so you have something to say to us in your word about every aspect of our life, every decision we make. Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might have the humility to change the way we think, change our opinions, change our views, that we might align them with the clear teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And we are down to verse, I think we're down to verse, I don't have it marked in my Bible, Uh, verse 20. Is that right? Verse 25. Yeah, verse 25. We got through the first 24 verses, and as part of that study, I focused on the fact that we have a leadership contrast between Solomon in his initial years when he first became king and Rehoboam when he first became king. And the difference is humility, and that humility comes from an orientation to God and who he is and an orientation to God's word and uh, what God's word says about us, and specifically in the arena of wisdom. And we saw Solomon's humility and his willingness to seek God for genuine wisdom in leading his people. He understood the significance of his leadership position, and Rehoboam did not. 
And as a result of that, Rehoboam, rather than listening to God's word, demonstrating humility and grace orientation when he was faced with some of the complaints from the citizens who lived in the ten northern tribes, he listened to the young men who had a different agenda and wanted to just utilize political power for their, to, to push their own agenda, to pr- improve their own position, to line their own pockets. Unfortunately, that's a paradigm that is true of all kinds of politicians, no matter what their uh, political views or philosophies might be. And then when Rehoboam would not listen to the tribes of the north, the tribes of the north decided to follow that time-honored political slogan to change, thinking that any change must be a change in the right direction. And today we have a lot of politicians talking about change, especially uh, one particular presidential uh, candidate who is talking about change all the time as the benchmark of his political platform, but nobody really looks at what kind of change he means. And just because somebody wants change and can identify that there is a problem or something might be broken, doesn't mean that their solution is the right solution. There's all kinds of people who can point to what's wrong with the church, what's wrong with the government, what's wrong with schools and education. But just because you're good at identifying what the problems are doesn't mean your solution is any better than what is being already implemented. And the problem that most Americans have, aside from not being able to to, uh, really analyze a lot of information on the basis of doctrine because they don't have any, is that they they don't understand history very well. History has been taken out of and has been distorted in the uh, classrooms at both the K-12 through level as well as the college and university level for at least 80 years, and increasingly the lecterns at our universities have been dominated by a human viewpoint of history that is built on a Darwinistic worldview that everything that happens in history is just is just random chance. So the American people have been shortchanged in many different in many ways because they have been led down a wrong path, and and they not that they don't want to. Their volitions involved, but there is a tremendous failure of leadership in almost every arena of American. Uh, American life and thought, and part of this, I think, is is God allowing us to reap the consequences of our negative volition following that pattern that we have studied so many times in Romans 1. And we see this pattern working itself out in the history of Israel in the uh, division that occurs between the northern and the southern king- kingdoms, because this is part of divine discipline on the nation, not only did Solomon lead them into idolatry, but they were led into idolatry. They were willing to follow his leadership into idolatry. And because of that, God was going, God was going to fulfill those disciplinary warnings that he had promised in Leviticus 26 
and in Deuteronomy in uh, bringing the nation under divine discipline, and part of that included fragmenting the nation now between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And last time we saw that that breach occurred as a result of this uh, tax revolt. And it's interesting to see the contrast between what happened in the north in Israel and what's happening in this country because they understood that increased taxes limited their options. The less money you have, the less you can choose to do. The more money you have, the more you can choose to do. When the government has its hand in both of your pockets and is taking out 50, 60, 70 percent of what you work hard to make, when the government thinks that what you make is, is really theirs and they have a right to it, then you lose freedom, you lose options, you lose choices. And that's what God warned about in 1 Samuel 8 and other passages we studied that God <clears throat> warned against the problem of big government because big government seeks to establish, uh, establish itself. And yet we live in a nation that, according to one survey I, I saw this morning, that the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans, some 80% of Democrats and 96% of Republicans believe that we should have smaller government and lower taxes. So how did we get these guys to run for president, huh? If that's what, what virtually, I don't know what that would average out to be, but let's say 90% of Americans believe that we should have smaller government and lower taxes, then how come all those people that we elect and send to Washington keep increasing the size of government and keep raising, uh, keep raising taxes. And at least the northern kingdom of Israel understood that, but what we have in this nation is people who constantly elect leaders who continue to increase, increase taxes, which is one of the great ways to destroy uh, to, to destroy the economy and to destroy the accumulation of wealth. But, of course, that's evil in our world to have, have wealth. Yet, the question I want, want to know the answer to is how many people, how many of you, don't raise your hand, this is a rhetorical question, but I want to know how many of you have ever worked for somebody who was poor and didn't have any money? Simple question, you know? We have to uh, have people who have money so that they can create and generate jobs and hire people and so the economy, uh, the economy can go forward. Well, anyway, Israel has their tax revolt, and as a result of that, they are going to have to reestablish their basic cities and institutions in the north and, and uh, re, redo all of their basic uh, systems, uh, economics, government, and uh, military as well as their spiritual base. And this is where we begin in verse 25 of chapter 12. Jeroboam I has to establish both the physical and the spiritual foundations of the northern kingdom. And initially in the first verse, in verse 25, he begins with the physical side, but then in verses 26 to 27, we see that in his thinking, he realizes that you can't just change what is going on on the outside externally. You have to change people on the inside spiritually. And once you're able to shift their focus spiritually, then you can transform the culture, which is exactly what's happened in American history over the last 200 years 
uh, beginning in the 19th century as Americans began to imbibe the, the consequences of extreme, uh, in the extreme enlightenment thinking and rationalism that destroyed true education in Europe. And by the mid-19th century, as the revolts against God in Europe are being transplanted to America, you begin to see the rise of the influence of Darwin, the rise of the influence of uh, other thinkers in the area of labor, uh, rise of the influence of other thinkers in terms of education. So by the beginning of the 20th century, you have many influential people coming out of transformed educational systems, in, mostly in the North and uh, in the Northeast. The old Ivy League schools had all been transformed. Most of them were founded, or many of them were founded to train pastors uh, to know the Bible, to teach the Bible, to teach the gospel. But by the end of the 19th century, uh, starting really early with the 20th century, in 1803, the... Um, Hollis Divinity Chair at Harvard went to a Unitarian, and everything just dominoed from that point all the way through to the end of the 20th century, and you had major heresy trials in all the denominations because the professors at their seminaries were teaching concepts that went along with evolution, were teaching the Bible wasn't the inspired word of God, that the Bible just was the product of man's thinking, and the heresy trials didn't work. And so all the denominations began to fragment in the early part of the 20th century. And what happens is that America then begins, to, as a result of change in their spiritual orientation away from the Word of God, it begins to affect how their social institutions function and operate. You have the rise of uh, progressive progressivism, progressive thought, which is just a nice word for... Uh, early forms of socialism and political liberalism. And then you have uh, the rise of the shift in education and, and moves to take any kind of absolutes out of the schools. All this culminates by the 1960s in a number of legislated decisions. But we see the same pattern uh, in our history that Jeroboam understood, brilliant man apparently, realizes that if he doesn't change the spiritual orientation of the people in the north, then he will lose them to the south. And so uh, he is going to take special moves to do that. Well, before we get into all of that, we need to have a little geography lesson uh, in Israel. So the first map here, I have a a map of the tribe, the tribal allotments coming out of the conquest, just to orient you so you can think through where we're going to go with a couple of different maps. On the west, you have the Great Sea, or today the Mediterranean Sea. On the To the east, on the right side of the map, is modern uh, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, or what was at that time simply called the Transjordan, the area across the Jordan, it, Jerusalem being the center. That was the area of the Transjordan, and there were three tribes that were given land on the east side of the Jordan. To the south, you have the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, the lowest point on earth, uh, about 1,400 feet below sea level. And then to the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, as it's called in the New Testament, uh, the Sea of Canaret or Lake of Canaret, actually, 
And in between, on the left side to the west of the Jordan River, you have what is referred to as the hill country of Ephraim in the, in the yellow area where Ephraim's tribe, but that whole area is Samaria, and most of that area is what's referred to today as the West Bank. That's, that's what's referred to as the, as the uh, West Bank and is under uh, so-called Palestinian control. Well, it, it is in that area that you have the, the two, all three of the cities that are at the, at the um, foundation of the passage from verse 25 down to 1310 that we are studying. The key location is Shechem, which is where the tribes met together and met with Rehoboam in the first uh, part of chapter, chapter 12. And then we come to verse 25 and we read that Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, Shechem was already there. What this means is not that he built it. It's not a new city, but he is refortifying it. He's going to establish that temporarily as his capital, and so he needs to fortify that city on the uh, west side of the Jordan. Then as we go through this passage and we read of his development of the uh, new golden calf worship, He's going to set up two sites for the worship of the golden calf to make it easy and convenient for people to worship God. They don't have to go down to Jerusalem because that would create a political conflict. If they went to Jerusalem, they would, they would be orienting to the tribe of David and they might hear the truth and he needs to, he's going to try to unify the people in the north and give them their own religion. And so he's going to argue for taking them back to the early form of their religion, which was that which Aaron was trying to develop at the foot of uh, Mount Sinai uh, with the golden calf. That's just a preview of where we're going. So he's going to establish two worship centers in, in violation of the Mosaic Law, which called for one central sanctuary, one central temple, which would be in Jerusalem. And so he sets up these two alternate worship centers, one in Bethel, which is there on the, that's the lower circle. It's on the border of Benjamin and Ephraim. And the territory given to Benjamin was always in flux. The southern border was never set during the years of the northern kingdom, it, there was a certain fluidity there, and that was never uh, n- never settled with any uh, any sense of uh, definitiveness. And then we're going to go north, and when I hit the key, the uh, slide will change, and we're just going to bump a little bit to the north because the area of Dan is just up above where the screen is. So there we go. That moves us up north. You can still see where Bethel is, just right at the bottom of the map. Shechem just above that. And now we're up in the area of Dan, or the ancient Canaanite name was Laish. So what you see here is that he sets up these two worship centers. One is all the way in the south. One's all the way in the north, so that they're convenient for everyone to go to. The people in the north don't have to travel all the way down south. It's just a lot easier instead of going to church and having to develop relationships with other believers. Let's just sit at home and listen to a tape. Now, there's some people that's all they can do because there's nothing in their area. But it's important to be, to have fellowship and to be in 
a local church that's teaching the truth that there's one uh, available. But once you get start operating on convenience, that's a, that's a slide downhill, and now we see people who all they want to do is go to church for entertainment. Well, we have Dan in the north, and we have Bethel in the south. Now, I'm going to shift to a slightly different kind of map. This map is has a little more of a uh, terrain orientation to it. We have Bethel in the south. I've circled Laish in the north. And we're going to also have a reference in here to the fact that he's going to not only rebuild Shechem in verse 25, but he is going to rebuild Penuel or Peniel, which is in the Transjordan, that's on the Jabbok River, that is almost directly east of Shechem. Where, and it's, the name isn't on the map, but it is in the center of that area where I have, uh, have that circle in the Transjordan. Now, just to have a little fun, and because I'm figuring out how to use a different program, this is a uh, view of the same area. We see uh, the area of Samaria here. Here is Shechem, and we can zoom in on this to Shechem, and we see that just outside of Shechem you have Mount Ebal, and Mount Gerizim. Now, if the technology doesn't fail me, if I highlight this and click on 3D, we can get a 3D look at let me pull this back in a little bit. I'm not good at these controls yet. You can see a little bit of the terrain features with Mount Ebal and Mount to the north and Mount Gerizim on the south. Now, I pointed out last time those were important because when after the initial part of the conquest, Joshua brought the tribes together, and they put six tribes on each of those two uh, mountains, and they read the law and answered one another. There was a uh, an echoing back and forth that took place as they recommitted themselves in that conquest generation to the Mosaic Covenant. Now let's go back to the slides. A lot of good pictures today. Here we have what it looks like today. You have Mount Gerizim on the left and Mount Ebal on the right, and the city in between is modern Nablus, which is on the site of ancient Shechem. Here is a picture of Mount Ebal. Looking at it a little more closely in the foreground, you see some things, some uh, uh, flat areas over here. Where's my mouse? There we go. In this area, and this is the area where the archaeological work is being done on the site of ancient Shechem. Here's looking up to the top of Mount Gerizim. So it must have been quite a site to have seen about 600,000 or more Israelites on each hill, probably about a million on each hill, and <clears throat> answering one another antiphonally as they read through the Mosaic Law. And in that kind of a valley, there must have been an impressive uh, echo. Here's another slide of Mount Gerizim, uh, seen from Shechem down below. 
And then this is a slide of the ruins of a Middle Bronze Age gate that's about the time of Abraham. Remember when Abraham first came into the land, as he came down from the north, he stopped at Shechem, built an altar, and sacrificed to the Lord. So this would have been about that same period of time. And this is a uh, remains of a temple to Baal Barit, one of the manifestations of the Canaanite god Baal in Shechem at that time. Another slide of the Baal temple. Now in this last slide related to Shechem, this is looking from Shechem due west across the Jordan River Valley to the uh, Wadi Jabak or the Jabak River on the west side, you can see where the mountains come together. That's where the Jabak River flows, and uh, Penile is located about uh, 30 miles across the Jordan. So by setting up, refortifying both of these sites, he's taking a defensive move in order to protect the nation against invasions from either the west or the east. Now, in verse 26, we read, And Jeroboam said in his heart, this shows that he's thinking. He's trying to figure out how to unify these ten tribes. There hasn't been a tremendous amount of unity in Israel's history. We can go back to the time of the judges when everyone was doing what was in their own heart, and there wasn't a unity in Israel at that time. It wasn't until uh, Saul and then uh, David even had trouble. It took him seven and a half years before he finally unified the 12 tribes, the first seven and a half years, he reigned from Hebron, and he didn't unify the tribes uh, for a while. And there's the, the 10 northern tribes were always apparently a little resistant to the Davidic leadership. So he says to himself, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. I want you to notice the, the use of that word kingdom. This is the issue in Israel's history is this kingdom and the kingdom of the God promised. And when the prophets start showing up as they do, the role of prophecy in the Old Testament isn't about satisfying people's curiosity about the future. It's not just telling people incidental facts about what's going to happen. The prophets aren't someone you go to like your local astrologer or palm reader or tarot card reader just trying to find out who you should marry or where you should go to college or what's going to happen next or what stocks you should buy or sell. Uh, what we have with the prophets is that they're outlining God's plan in the development and establishment of his kingdom in Israel. And because the Israelites disobeyed God, many times what the prophets are doing is they're challenging Israel with the fact that they have violated the law. They're coming as a prosecutor, indicating this is the indictment against Israel, and this is the punishment according according to the law. So this terminology is embedded in their thinking, even though Jeroboam's thinking is pagan. We see the same thing in America. How many times... Do we hear politicians pander to people about their Christianity? Here on the one hand this time we have one uh, contender for the presidency who's been uh, as bright as he's supposed to be. He's managed to sit under a pastor who preached uh, Marxist uh, rhetoric, black liberation theology for 20 years, and he didn't have a clue that's what he was doing. Well, frankly, I don't know how anybody could vote for a president who was so dense 
that he didn't recognize Marxism when he heard it and wouldn't walk out the door. I mean, how can anybody vote for somebody like that? That's not real bright. Then on the other hand, we have another guy, and, and who knows what his religious convictions are. Uh, he, fortunately, he hasn't made a big issue out of them, which is probably a good thing. We have a president in the White House today who, because of the fact that he comes out of a liberal Methodist background, he doesn't understand that the essence of Islam isn't peace. It's only peace if you submit to Islam. And see, that's, that's one reason religion is important, is because if people have a pseudo-religious framework, then they're going to make bad decisions based on faulty information. And that's pretty much what this president has done, although he has uh, done some things to try to defend the nation against uh, against uh, Islamic terrorism. But he consistently, and many others, want to make this division that is... Uh, not true if you understand what the Bible says is true and you understand what, what Islam actually, actually teaches. And so we find that just in their day, just as in our day, people have been influenced by a superficial religious system and terminology. In fact, now that I mentioned, uh, uh, the junior senator from Illinois and his uh, Marxist black liberation leanings. Uh, one of the th- passages that he has referred to when he was interviewed by uh, Rick Warren out there in Southern California, and that was a pretty decent interview, by the way, as much as I may disagree with Rick Warren's ecclesiology, he did a very fine job of bringing out a number of issues. And when he asked uh, Senator Obama, what his uh, favorite passage of Scripture was, uh, Obama went to uh, Matthew chapter 25. And he went to Matthew chapter 25, and he quoted the passage on the sheep and the goat judgment. That's in Matthew 25:31 uh, down to 46. And this just shows his interpretation of this passage said more about his economics than you've heard anybody say. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, is a parable related to the judgment of the Gentile nations at the end of the tribulation period in relationship to how the individuals in the nations treated Jews during the tribulation period. And, but you will always find political liberals, Marxists, and socialists taking this out of context and using this as a passage to, to say Jesus is more concerned about the poor, and so we have to take care of the poor, and we have to feed the hungry, and all of this socialist uh, pandering that they do, uh, which doesn't help the poor at all, and yet it somehow gets them a lot of votes. And the parable begins in verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, these are the sheep, the saved ones. Notice they're on the right. Just want to make sure you understood that. They're not. He didn't put the saved ones on the left. He put them on the right. 
the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, they always stop there. Say, see, what we have to do is take care of the poor, take care of the destitute, take care of the hungry. That's that's what Jesus expects us to do. No, they stop at the wrong verse. The next verse says, then the righteous will answer him. See, those who are on his right hand are the righteous, and they are only righteous because they receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And because they've trusted in Christ as their Savior, because they have divine viewpoint about Israel, then when Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, his use of the first-person pronoun there, he is personifying, he's relating himself to the nation of Israel. And when Israel is persecuted, when they are uh, being driven out uh, by the Antichrist, when they are being persecuted during the tribulation period, then those who are believers are going to take care of the Jews that are under persecution. They are not going to be anti-Semitic. And so the foundation of this, this is the last thing this is teaching is any kind of social program or any kind of social compassion. What this is talking about is the evils of anti-Semitism and that Jesus is going to judge those nations and those peoples who do not support the Jews during the tribulation uh, period. Uh, the righteous answer and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, drink, when do we do all this? And, and he answers them and says to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. And that terminology, my brethren, relates to the Jews, the saved Jews, the true Israel of Israel during the tribulation period. That you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Some poor homeless person sleeping under a bridge in Chicago that doesn't know the first thing about Jesus Christ isn't the object of this parable. But when you have, but when you have politicians who don't have enough sense to recognize that their pastor is preaching perverse heresy from the pulpit as, as in, in terms of Christianity, then what can you expect in terms of how he handles the Bible or how he can handle truth? He wouldn't know truth if it slapped him in the face. Because you, first of all, to know truth, you have to start with the Word of God, for that is what truth is. Now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. So Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. And he has, as I pointed out, he has this religious verbiage, but he doesn't understand it correctly, which is what we see too often in our politics on both sides of the aisle. Republicans pander as much to uh, evangelicals as, as liberals do. Verse 27, Jeroboam goes on to say, If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, 
Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So his motivation is simply self-preservation. He doesn't want to lose his position of power, his position of, of uh, leadership in the north. He wants to continue to lead, to work out the results of his uh, tax revolt, and he wants to continue to be the king. So he has to solve this problem by changing the religious orientation of the people, which is what he does in verse 28. Therefore, the king asked advice and made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, this is the same thing that Aaron said at the base of Mount Sinai after Moses had been up there for 40 days and 40 nights and people are getting restless and they think that God has killed him and he's not coming back and they uh, pleaded with Aaron to make them a golden calf. The idea of a golden calf came out of Egyptian religion. But this isn't pure idolatry here. And later in Kings there will be a distinction made between the golden calf religion of Jeroboam and the introduction of Baalism in the fertility cult under Ahab and Jezebel, which we'll get into in, in the 16th chapter. What he is doing here is two things. The first thing that he is doing is he is redefining history. He is redefining history. He is saying it didn't happen the way that Exodus says it happened. Uh, the uh, God did not bring us out of Egypt. It's this God, this this golden calf that brought us out of, out of Egypt. There's a certain amount of truth there. He's going to talk about Yahweh, but he's going to identify Yahweh with the golden calf. And so he's going to begin a time-honored political uh, tradition of redefining the truth and reshaping the truth. And this is why voters need to be extremely sophisticated. You need to read a lot is because politicians just love to pull the wool over the uh, sheep's eyes and fool them as to what they're actually saying. And in light of that, it must be from God. Somebody chuckle. But there were two editorials from the Wall Street Journal that came out in support of this point in just the last couple of days. How timely. The first one that I'm going to read from, and this one's a lot of fun, so I've got to have a little fun with it in the way I read it because it needs to be read out loud uh, the way it was written. And it, was, it came out in the Wall Street Journal on October the 10th. It's written by Kimberly Strassel, and it's entitled Obama's Magic, presto changeo. And now, America, we introduce the great Obama, the world's most gifted political magician, a thing of wonder, a thing of awe. Just watch him defy politics, economics, even gravity. And hold your applause until the end, please. To kick off our show tonight, Mr. Obama will give 95% of American working families a tax cut even though 40% of Americans today don't pay income tax. How can our star enact such mathemagic? How can he cut zero? Abracadabra, it's called a refundable tax credit. See, this golden calf 
is the God that brought you out of Egypt. He's redefining history, redefining terms. What he means by a tax credit isn't, uh, by a tax, uh, tax cut isn't a tax cut at all. And I don't know about you, but as I sit around and watch some of these debates, and on the one hand, you have Obama talking about how uh, he's going to give 95% of Americans a tax cut, and then you hear the Republicans cl- claim that, that all they're going to do is raise taxes. You sort of scratch your head and try to figure out how are they parsing these terms. You know somebody's playing a shell game. You're not sure if it's only one of them or both of them, but you know somehow that you better have your hand on your wallet. Now let me go on with this article. For his next trick, the great Obama will also jumpstart the economy, and he'll do it by raising taxes on the very businesses that are today adrift in a financial tsunami. That will include all those among the top 1% of taxpayers who are in fact small business owners and the nation's biggest employers who currently pay some of the highest corporate taxes in the highest corporate rates tax rates in the developed world. Mr. Obama will, with a flick of his fingers, show them how to create more jobs with less money. It's simple, really. He has a wand. Is is her name Nancy? Next up, Mr. Obama will re-regulate the economy with no ill effects whatsoever. You may have heard that for the past 40 years, most politicians believed deregulation was good for the U.S. economy. You might have even heard that much of today's financial mess tracks to loose money policy or Fannie and Freddie excesses. And what you've heard, and I've heard the same thing, is that the, the reason we had this collapse is because free enterprise didn't work. The free market system didn't work. The problem is that what generated the Fannie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae debacle and, and the credit crunch was the... Um, uh, a Community Reinvestment Act back in 1977 that was uh, pushed by the Democrats and Jimmy Carter and I'm sure a number of liberal Republicans. And once you start having politicians trying to reshape and redefine the reality of numbers, then eventually what they're going to do is build a house of cards that will collapse. And that's what's happened since... Uh, who knows how long it didn't that kind of thinking didn't start in the 70s but you can trace this uh, debacle back to the community reinvestment act in in 1977 and clinton passed another form of it in 95 which made it illegal for banks to to not give loans to those who were underprivileged and really couldn't afford to pay them back because they wanted to reshape society they were in, they were letting their accounting which ought to be pure black and white science, be shaped by, by an agenda of social engineering, which in reality is being shaped by what? What's always at the root of everything? A religious assumption. And the religious assumption is that man is the center of everything. We got rid of God back when Darwin came up with uh, the uh, origin of the species. We don't need God. Man is just a product of time plus chance, and, and that's their view of history. It's the same thing that Jeroboam did. He was looking at history and saying, I can, I can manipulate history like the proverbial clay nose on the face of a statue. They want it to go one way, and I'll just twist it the other way. 
We can shape it any way we want to and make history serve our purposes. And so you had the same kind of thinking uh, influenced by too many liberal types of, of uh, leaders in this country, both, both Republicans and Democrats, who thought they could reshape the laws of numbers and somehow uh, make it possible for somebody who made 30000 a year to qualify for a loan to buy a $200,000 house and make the payments. And it just doesn't work. But when politics and a pseudo-religious system changes your social thinking, then the results are the collapse of the society. And we're going to, we see the same thing. Uh, Connecticut, I'm glad I'm here because when this happens in Texas, I'll be in jail with a lot of other people that feel the same way. There weren't others like that in Connecticut, so I didn't want to go to jail with nobody who would watch my backside. Uh, Connecticut just legalized homosexual marriage, not civil unions, but marriage. So, you know, we see this, all of this comes out of the same kind of thinking. It is a totally fraudulent type of thing. These people are completely self-deceived about the nature of, the re- of reality so that they, they, they want higher taxes. They want um, socialism because they think somehow uh, that's going to solve, solve all, all of their problems. Well, let's go back to this article. She goes on and talks about a number of different things. And, and just, just uh, I don't want to read every word, but I'll go back down to the a uh, couple of paragraphs later, she says, We're back now, and just watch the great Obama perform a feat never yet managed in all history. That's because he's redefined history. He will create that enormous new government health program, spend billions to transform our energy economy, provide financial assistance to former Soviet satellites, invest in infrastructure, increase education spending, provide job training assistance, and give 95% of Americans a tax cut. Now, I skipped an important paragraph. Earlier in the article, she had talked about all these tax credits, $500 tax credit to make work pay, $4,000 tax credit for college tuition, a 10% mortgage interest tax credit, a savings tax credit, expansion of the earned income tax credit, child care credit, 50% up to $6,000, a year, a clean car tax credit, all of these things. And she comes back and she says, for the Obama Democrats, a tax cut. I shifted articles here. She says, having gone through listing all of those, all of those different things, she says that he's basically going to solve all this by just giving Money, transferring money from those who pay taxes to those who don't pay taxes. Because it's not like a tax cut, like you made a certain amount of money and so your tax bill should be 5000 but we got a tax cut, so it's only 4000 What With these tax credits, the way they work is you're going to get a tax credit, but you didn't pay any taxes. You didn't work. You didn't, you didn't get to have anything taken out of any paycheck. And if you did work a little bit and had something taken out, you got that back. But with a tax credit, what he's going to do is he, he, if it's a $500 tax credit and you didn't pay any, any taxes, well, I'm going to give you $500. So it's a transfer of wealth from the haves to the have-nots. It's just like Obama said yesterday 
when he was up in, uh, I think he was up in uh, the, the uh, Phil, uh, Pennsylvania area, and this, and he was going through the crowd, and this plumber said that his business just suffered so much from the taxes, and Obama said, well, sir, we need to uh, spread the wealth around. See, last time I looked, somebody who was a blue-collar plumber had a plumbing business, and this wasn't the wicked rich. But in communism, you're going to take money uh, away from everybody. Well, the second editorial came out to, uh, today, or yesterday, rather, in the Wall Street Journal called Obama's 95% Illusion. It depends on what the meaning of tax cut is. And the key paragraph in here is he says, for the Obama Democrats, a tax cut is no longer letting you keep more of what you earn. In their lexicon, a tax cut includes tens of billions of dollars in government handouts that are disguised by the phrase tax credit. Mr. Obama is proposing to create or expand no fewer than seven such credits for individuals. In other words, they are an income uh, transfer, a federal check from taxpayers to non-taxpayers. Once upon a time, we called this welfare or, in George McGovern's 1972 campaign, a demigrant. Mr. Obama's genius is to call it a tax cut. See, that was the genius of Jeroboam I. He looked at that golden calf and he said, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. But if you didn't know the truth and you didn't know the Bible, then you're going to get duped just like so many do down through history by someone who comes along and has a great rhetorical style, but they have no content. And the little content you do glean is just just plain evil. And that is exactly how God will analyze uh, Jeroboam the first. So his idea is to come up with these two calves of gold, and he says to the people, verse 28, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Hear your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of, of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And so we have seen the fact that Dan is all the way in the north, and Bethel is in the south. Now, the only pictures I could come up with on, uh, on Bethel, it's a modern Beitin, and these are two aerial shots that give you a little bit of an idea of what this looks like. It's on a bit of a tail. You can identify the uh, Islamic mosque by the uh, tower that's there, and this is, again, just a, a, a Palestinian area. Not much there in terms of, of biblical remains. But the one in the north has some fascinating Remains, and every time I go to Israel, this is always uh, a favorite place uh, where people go. And it's an area that is referred to as Tel Dan. Uh, Tel Dan, of course, this is a national park, a, na- uh, a nature reserve in the Israeli national uh, park system. Now, I don't think you can read the sign, but I can, and I'll read a little bit of these signs to you because they have some good information. The Dan Stream, this is all the way in the north, and it's uh, Dan, the Dan Tributary is one of three tributaries to the Jordan, uh, Jordan River. And so this is at the very headwaters of the Jordan. That's what that map in the middle is uh, showing, is where the different streams come together to form the Jordan River, all the way at the north, just barely inside of Israel. Syria's on one side. Literally, you can throw rocks 
And so water is important in the desert. Uh, all those na- countries over there have problems with water, so that's part of the uh, issue that uh, they have to deal with all the time. The sign says the Dan Stream is the longest and most important of the three sources of the Jordan River. Spring water is plentiful year-round, fed by the rain and snow that fall on Mount Hermon. Due to the abundance of water, the favorable environmental conditions, and the geographic location, vegetation has grown rich and thick on the reserve, creating tunnels of shade and lovely spots where animals of various species are found. On Tel Dan, rising above the springs, remnants of great walls and gates of biblical Dan and even the Canaanite city of Laish are uncovered. And following the archaeological excavations, the site was reconstructed in 1994. So this is a great place to go visit. Now, on one side, you have the discovery of the ancient Canaanite gates. Laish, if you remember, was the Canaanite city that was close to where Abraham defeated the armies of the kings that had invaded the, the uh, alliance under uh, Keterleomer. And so these gates that are there are the gates that Abraham would have seen at that particular time. The gate that we're going to look at was approached on a step path, the sign says. It's built of three arches. The arches, the piers supporting them, and the towers flanking the gate are constructed of sun-baked bricks and were covered with white plaster. The gate has survived to its full height of seven meters, and today it's possible only to see the outer arch. So there is the uh, Tel Dan gate, the Canaanite gate, that has survived all of this time. And if you look closely, you'll recognize a few people uh, from the back side. I recognize uh, Bob Beaver there from the back side, Laura's Hat, a few others in the crowd, and Doug Carn. Right around the corner from that place that we did not go to, there are the remains of a four-chambered gate. Now, the entry into these cities, you would have these gates, and these chambers were where they would store things and where the men would sit. This is where judicial hearings uh, were carried on and where you would have the guard details uh, change, where they would store their weapons and that kind of thing. The, the tributary of the Dan is quite impressive. We get there after usually you spent time in a very dry area, and so it's green and it's lush, and the water is uh, perfectly potable. So you can just take your uh, canteen and water bottle, fill it up in the, in the river and drink it, and it's cold and fresh and just, uh, just tremendous. So it's always a, everybody's uh, favorite place to go and walk around as we go through the, uh, the preserve there at Tel Dan. And it's quite a surprise when you, after you've walked through all this lush vegetation to come out on the other side and discover that you are on the site where Jeroboam I built his altar. And they have this sign there which gives you a good schematic, an overview of what the site looks like. On the, in the center there, you see this square, and this is the uh, main center of the altar. Now, you can't see it very well on the projection, but there's a, a framework, a metal framework that's in the middle that you'll see more clearly later that's, where, that's about the size of the uh, altar that they built there. Off to the left, there's a water reservoir, 
which is where they stored water for cleansings, like the laver. See, it's modeled somewhat after the uh, tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. So the priest would come in from that left side, go to the water reservoir and cleanse himself. Then you have the brazen altar. And then up on the right, you have the high place, which is where they would conduct various, uh, various rituals. Now, here's a little better picture as you're looking down from above. We see the metal framework here uh, indicating the size of the altar with its four horns, the high place off here on the right, and behind these trees here, we'll see it in a minute, the reservoir for the water. If you look out past the, uh, past the altar here, you see the green fields. We'll talk about, I'll talk about those in a minute. That's the Shabbat Farms, which is a very small area that's constantly being fought over and argued. It's at the center of almost every controversy between Israel and Lebanon. Uh, those mountains on the far side are Lebanon. You can't see it real well in this picture. But just, just here you see a couple of white spots, which are buildings, that's about a mile and a half away. That's, that's in Lebanon. So you're, you're right in a little finger of Israel uh, squeezed in between Lebanon and Syria. Looking down from a, a little more to the right, you look back on the, here's the high place. Here's that big, look at that oak tree as your uh, guide on. Here's the framework for the altar here. And then right down here is the uh, laver. Now, the sign says that following the division of the kingdom of Solomon in 930 B.C., which is our chapter, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, established a cult at Dan as an alternative to the one at the temple in Jerusalem. He placed a golden calf in the city and built a house of high places. In the Hellenistic period, the cultic precinct was surrounded by a wall that is visible to this day. A bilingual Greek and Aramaic inscription found at the site attests to the sanctity of of the precinct. So you have the altar here and then the bema, as it's identified in the sign, or the high place up above. Off to the left you have the priestly chambers and the altar chamber, which is where they kept the coals and the shovels and other instruments for the, for the altar. Uh, here's a sign that depicts Jeroboam offering a sacrifice, the priests of Jeroboam offering a sacrifice and getting ready to slaughter the lamb upon the altar. The sign reads, a quote from 1 Kings 12, 32 to 33, our very passage, Jeroboam ordained a feast, and he offered upon the altar, sacrificing unto the calves, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So here's a couple of other shots to give you a little feel for the area. It's a how large it is, looking at the uh, altar there, how, how enormous that must have been, where the priest could walk up on it. This is a picture of the, the uh, uh, water reservoir that would serve as the laver. Then this shot again, you see the laver here on the left. You see the altar here in the high place off to the right. And if you look through, you just barely see that there's a sign here, and we're going to walk into that chamber through a set of three slides. So here we're a little closer. This was the chamber where they kept all of the tools and everything related to the altar. And the sign is a quote from Leviticus 16.12. 
He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar. So that is what would have transpired in that particular area. Here's one last shot of the uh, altar with Pastor Ingram vaguely in the background there coming up. Now what was interesting is to get the inside story on the fighting that goes on here. This is looking out across this area that's not very wide on Shabbat farms. And and even as recently as the last Lebanese war, that was part of the negotiations. There are minefields out there. I think a couple of years ago somebody said, well, can we walk over there? And the guy said, yeah, if you want to get blown up. There's two or three minefields out there from from both sides. And the reason this has been so disputed is back in the uh, eight in the 1940s when the British under the British mandate were tr- deciding uh, where the boundaries would be they had a map and they they knew that the historical boundaries of Israel were from Dan to Beersheba and so they took out the map and using a number 2 pencil they drew the border now, that border represents an area that's about 200 yards wide. And so they've been arguing about who controls the area under the lead line ever since. And that's the Shaba Farms. They also have an area here. This was the Dan Post Lookout. The area is honeycombed with uh, all sorts of bunkers and uh Defense, former defensive positions from the 67 war, and this sign points out a number of things that you're looking at as you look out over the Shabbat farms. Starting in 1964, the Lebanese and the Syrians were encroaching on uh, Israel's territory, trying to take this territory, and so they had to establish these defensive positions there. And this is one of them. Uh, You can go this way and go down through the lookout bunker and go through the tunnels, which we did, or you can walk up a little higher to the lookout post, which is what I just showed you a picture of. And there's a picture, I believe that's Kelly and Melanie, uh, as they're going down into the into the tunnels. There was a machine gun bunker down there, or at least mounting and housing was still there, and some of the loose wires from their communications network. But there were a lot of these tunnels you just really didn't want to uh, walk through, but they did honeycomb uh, honeycomb that, that area. Well, in verse 30 we read, as God's conclusion and editorial on this, now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. This becomes the basis for God's evaluation for all the kings in the north, they follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. So we'll stop there at verse 30, come back next time, and we'll pick up in verse 31, concluding this section and then getting into the prophecy and its fulfillment in, in the next chapter. Conclusion, be wary of politicians and their attempts to rewrite and revise definitions and history and law because it doesn't do anyone, especially us, any good. But God is in control. And no matter what happens this year, we have to keep coming back to that, that God controls history. And even if 
uh, you don't, uh, you're not on the winning side in November, and I don't think anybody will be, no matter who they vote for. God is still in control. When we see the kinds of things going on in the world today that are going on today, then I always believe that God is moving the big chess pieces on the board of human history, setting things up once again for the great end times scenario. So we can just relax and enjoy being a part of it and watching it. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be uh, clued in with insight from your word as to how to think about history and how to look at history and how to evaluate the claims of, of political leaders. But above all, we're reminded of your grace, that you have provided so much for us and that you control history and so we can rest and relax in you no matter what happens because we recognize the principle that cursed is the man who trusts in man, that our only hope is to trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.